Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, we confess this day, believers in this room, just moments from our conversion, moments from our regeneration as new believers, we have an eternity's worth of experiences and truths in your gospel to recount to the praise of your great name. Father, the fact that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ our Lord, took on flesh and took upon himself our sin and the wrath of God to be crucified in our place is cause enough to fill heaven with worship and accolades to the chief of our salvation, to the King of kings and to the sovereign over all who will be gathered and reunited through this glorious plan of the gospel and a worship service that never ends. We just thank you, God, for these things, and we magnify you for them. Furthermore, the longer we are in Christ, the more we realize the deeds of the Lord are our testimony. You have preserved us. You have encouraged us. You have caused our feet not to stray too far to the right or to the left before weighing our heart with the burden of repentance and returning us to our first love and keeping us, Lord, on a short leash, as it were, by the power of your grace. You have preserved our life. You have healed us of sickness. You have surrounded us with the body of Christ. You have provided for our needs. You have protected us from our enemies. You have encouraged us in the day of trouble. You have given us sweet victory and joy, deliverance and provision along the way. These are the deeds of our Lord that we recount, each one of us, as we stop and think of the mercies of our Lord, which are new every single morning. And now as your mercies appear new to us today, in the provision of your holy word, the worship of the saints, and the fellowship of the beloved, and the prayers that we have to offer to you, I pray, Lord, that these mercies would encourage us to be stronger still in our walk with you and more consistent in the application of your scripture, to shine more brightly as a light to the lost, and that we would hold out hope to those who are yet dead and perishing in their transgressions and sins, that in Christ alone is hope for eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us as your church, and that you would call the lost to repentance through the proclamation of your word today and all that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, let us embrace our time together to fellowship and to consider the Lord's word in worship and in attention. Let us do this around Genesis 32. As you're able, would you turn there as we continue? in our series documenting God's intervention in Jacob's life. The second portion of the chapter, verses 13 through 32, Genesis 32 will be our consideration. We'll read the last portion of the chapter, 22 through 32, in a moment. This is that famous story where Jacob encounters God himself in theophonic, which means a manifestation that Jacob can tangibly interact with. God reveals himself in theophonic form, to Jacob, and there is this interesting event where he wrestles him, it would appear, all night long as God reveals to his covenant son provisions that he will need along the way, especially as he faces the dangerous proposition of reuniting 
with his brother who once wanted to kill him, and for good reason. That brother being Esau, and those reasons being the stealing of both blessing and birthright in ways that, the, that only a schemer like Jacob could conceive. The title of this morning's message is Facing God. Jacob is facing God. He comes face to face with God. He names the place of his meeting and wrestling with God, the face of God. Another name to mark, another moment in Jacob's life. And so we have this timeline, if you will, along his journey, marked by another glorious interposition of the Lord of glory to the covenant son. The aim of this morning's message is to, fear, is to feature the grace and glory of relationship with God. Jacob's relationship with the Lord features the Lord's grace and glory. And we see both of these in our text today. Out of reverence for God's word, would you stand for the reading of the same today? This is Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Herein is the word of God. The same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you, unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Verse 30, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Verse 31, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As is often the case in narrative, that is, the account of the life and experience, setting characters and conflict of certain individuals in the Old Testament, these three elements, categories, are important in this account as well. The setting, characters, and conflict in this document, in this story, biography of Jacob, continued to provide a stage for the revelation of God to Jacob and through Jacob, his covenant son. Again, setting, characters, and conflict. Keep that in mind as you study the scriptures, especially those story or narrative portions of the Old Testament. Pay attention to how the setting, the characters, and the conflict set the stage or provide a stage for the revelation of God to his covenant son or to a particular individual, and in Jacob's case, through them as well. Jacob, of course, is soon to be named Israel in our text today. And we find him in this moment halfway between the Sea of Galilee on the north. So if you have that picture, a map of the Holy Land in your mind, there's that kind of roundish Sea of Galilee to the north. Jordan River running just about straight north and south. 
and then that kind of elongated shape, the Dead Sea in the south. Our story finds Jacob halfway between the Sea of Galilee to the north and the Dead Sea to the south at the Jabbok River, which runs west and seeks to join the Jordan. The river's, the river's name, Jabbok, denotes something similar to the circumstances that will unfold. Jabbok, as the scholars tell us, means something like a pouring out or a wrestling or a striving activity, as if the river is struggling through the wilderness, striving, seeking, fighting to join up with its greater big brother, the Jordan, on its way to the Dead Sea. It is here that Jacob is toiling in anguish of soul, fearing the prospect of encountering his estranged, slighted brother, Esau. Just like the river Jabbok is struggling to join the Jordan, so Jacob is struggling on his journey, his exodus, against all odds, to enter Canaan, reassured of safe passage in spite of the dangers that he faces, chief among them, his brother, who last he heard 20 years ago, wanted to kill him because of his scheming. It is also at the Jabbok Ford, which of course means that narrow passage or shallow portion where you can cross a river. It is also at the Jabbok Ford that Jacob's life of conflict reaches an apex or crescendo, a moment of significance. He spends an entire night, it would appear, striving with God himself, fighting for a blessing, desperate for reassurance in his crisis. This is interesting when we consider that the covenant son, Jacob, passes safely through these waters of what would otherwise be judgment or crisis, if you will. He's able to safely cross the river Jabbok because God is with him. This reminds us of a covenant son, collectively speaking, in the future, who would cross another body of water in their own exodus. Yes, under Moses, generations later, the children of Israel would look to the story of their forefather Jacob, who preceded them, to gain encouragement for their own exodus. If God, in an encampment of angelic hosts, can provide Jacob the protection and guidance he needs, and if the Lord himself can visit our forefather and interact with him on a personal, tangible basis all night long to reassure him of the covenant blessing, to cross the Jabbok safely, even in the presence of his enemies, so the Lord can deliver us, the Israelites of the faithful ones might say, across the Red Sea under the hand of our deliverer Moses, as the Lord has anointed him to attend our way. And, of course, the presence of God was visible and tangible, accompanying them just as God accompanied Jacob. Jacob could see the Lord following him in the angels that encamped there at the, at the place the chapter opens, uh, recording Jacob went his way and the angels of God met him. Jacob saw them and said, this is God's camp. Jacob saw the presence of the Lord. He touched the presence of the Lord, so to speak, that night as he wrestled with the Lord in theophany, all night long. And so it was later that the children of Israel would visibly and tangibly be accompanied by the presence of the Lord. And kids remind us there was something during the day and something at night that. That is correct. Cloud by day and fire by night were the tangible forms of God's presence which accompanied the children of Israel in their own exodus to come. Now, there's an additional connection we might note. This is not the first theophany 
or visible presence of God, witnessed by the patriarchs, the forefathers, Jacob's experience reminds us and reminds the reader of his grandfather Abraham. And I'm thinking of chapter 15 in this case. Abraham had a visitation of the Lord himself as well. And here in towering, smoking fire pot and towering, flaming torch, as scholars have surmised, similar to the cloud by day and the fire by night, imagine two legs, as it were, walking through those sacrifices that lay in two pieces as God himself assures his covenant son, who is a sojourner, Abraham, of safe passage by self-harm oath. God appears to Abraham and says that he swears upon himself and his own life to accomplish his purposes. And in a similar way now, uh, Jacob is visited, visited in a very unique and incredible way by the Lord himself assuring him safe passage and that the covenant promises are as, sure, are as surely his as they were his grandfather Abraham. This happens by divine intervention. Here's one lesson from Jacob's testimony. There can be no peace in our souls and no peace with others until we have peace with God. Jacob's name is changed to signify a shift in his soul, a shift in his character, a shift in his identity that represents peace with God through covenant and therefore peace with others, even his one-time bitter fraternal enemy, Esau. It's a little background and introduction. Here's a heading for three events or points today. The heading is, At the ford of the Jabbok, so that river we mentioned before, three things happen. Number one, Jacob wrestles with man, verses 13 through 21. Number two, Jacob wrestles with God, 22 through 26. And number three, names mark the occasion. So at this river, at this narrow crossing, at this shallow portion, the ford of the Jabbok, Jacob wrestles with man once again. He wrestles with God, and names mark the occasion. Jacob wrestling with man. We didn't stand to read these verses, but let me read them to you now. As we see Jacob's latest scheme, although not as negative as before, it is nevertheless a plan to deal with the crisis at hand. And this, I, I submit to you in the immediate understanding, is his best idea, given the circumstances, to assuage his guilt and to appease his brother in light of the hatred, the terms on which they parted 20 years ago. So this is what Jacob decides to do in verse 13. It says, He stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. A little trivia for you kids. you remember how many expensive animals Jacob gave Esau in this gift? You guys remember? So quite a lot. 200 more. Higher, higher. 550 plus nursing camels. So if you took the time and added them up, Consider this list, 14, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. 
and moreover, He is behind us. Verse 19, He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Jacob is wrestling with man in this section. His consternation of the soul, he's coming up with his latest plan, and what he's wrestling with is the hatred and the fear of encountering Esau because they left 20 years ago on such bad terms. Jacob, is, of course, had tricked him both from both birthright and blessing, and Esau wanted to kill him. This wrestling was nothing new for Jacob, and it continued to mark his entire legacy. His legacy to date has been wrestling with man. It's not unique for Jacob to wrestle with man at the fort of Jabbok. He was born wrestling with man. From the womb, his brother Esau and Jacob were feuding. And if you remember, even at, as these twins were born, what was Jacob doing to Esau right as they were born? Do you kids remember this? It's an interesting detail in the text. That's correct. He was holding on to his ankle. Esau was born first, but Jacob was close behind, grasping the heel of his brother. This wrestling with Esau from the womb marked the identity of Jacob, which continued for years and years. We remember in our passage, Jacob is an old man at this time. There was conflict not just from the womb, but also conflict over right, birthright, and blessing. And then we can't forget that 20-year feud with Laban and Padan and Aram. The hatchet is just, you know, freshly buried in the last chapter, chapter 31. All these events feature the backstory. And they also signal a change in Jacob's character identity. Because the schemer now, we already see signs of a heart change. The schemer is becoming a generous giver. Nevertheless, he continues to wrestle with man. The thought of facing Esau troubles Jacob. Wrestling with this situation... He comes up with this idea, this strategy. And I submit, as we mentioned before, this is a different means that Jacob employs. Whereas in the past, he would trick and deceive and kind of come up with a plan that would be to his benefit at the expense of others. Here, something different happens. Jacob gives lavishly and generously of his flocks. He spares no expense, 550 plus valuable animals to precede him as a gift for his brother. So this is a signal of a change, a softening, if you will, in the heart of Jacob, but it also illustrates that he's continuing to wrestle with the conflict in his life, and this is the best idea that he can come up with. In as far as he is strategizing to assuage his guilt and to appease his brother, this is kind of a psychological approach, if you will. Think of this, you have 550 plus animals and would appear in our text in three droves. A drove, as I understand it, is a group of animals that you drive ahead of you, right? So three groups of, uh, that together add up 550 animals and then a group of servants, shepherds with each. So you send out that first drove ahead of you by a day or, or so. And then you send out the second one by a day. You've heard from your scouts that Esau is in the distance with 400 fighting men, we presume. And then after a while, you send out your third. And so then the fourth encampment, 
that Esau encounters will be one of Jacob's two encampments. The fifth will be the second one. And so, so you see, it's a pretty elaborate psychological strategy. Perhaps he can manipulate the situation, it would seem, in the immediate context. Or convince his brother to lay aside his anger and hatred, resentment and revenge for what Jacob has done. When he comes across hundreds of animals, wait, what's this? Where are you guys from? Well, we come from your servant, uh, Jacob. These are a gift for you, my Lord. And then, you know, a few uh, miles later, the next day, second drove. Oh, who are you? Where do you come from? Well, this is a gift, again, to my Lord from our servant, uh, or from our master, Jacob. And then thirdly, he comes upon this, and then Jacob imagines, well, perhaps Esau's heart is softening in the wake of these gifts until finally he comes to my camp. If he is still intent on harming me, perhaps the second camp can escape. So it's an elaborate scheme that Jacob has come up with. It's a three-drove gift parade, which could be considered from two perspectives. The first is what I've outlined so far. In the immediate context, it would seem to be a strategic plan intended to condition, to persuade, or to manipulate Esau emotionally. Perhaps by this means, in spite of what he's done in the past, Jacob can kind of kill the murderous heart with kindness, he thinks, and Esau will spare him his life and his family and so forth. There's a second perspective, and oftentimes these accounts in Scripture are like this. There's kind of the immediate sinner-to-sinner situation, but then there's kind of a little higher perspective. And as a type and shadow, this is an interesting uh, detail as well. It perhaps can signal to us that, w- that reconciliation is accomplished by a lavish gifts of grace from the covenant son. So as one sinner to another, this is kind of a psychological ploy. But as a type and shadow of Christ, this, illust- or this situation illustrates to us that gifts of grace from the covenant son are the basis of reconciliation. So we mark in our story today as Jacob continues to wrestle with man and the, uh, and the uh, situation or the circumstance of meeting his brother. We mark his legacy to date and his strategy to deal with it. And then thirdly, we see, in his, own in, we see his own intentions uh, revealed to us in a little more clear form in verse 20. A, and he, for he thought, so a window into Jacob's soul, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. This is a very important phrase of an, that uh, reveals intent. Why did Jacob conceive this whole plan and send these gifts ahead? He thought, I may appease him. I may convince Esau to forgive my sins. With this present that goes ahead of me, with this peace offering, if you will, with these animals as a substitute that I sacrificially offer, perhaps afterward I shall see his face. There will not be murder in his eyes, but love and forgiveness. And perhaps we can reconcile. The intent of Jacob is revealed in verse 20. He hopes to appease. Now, literally, in the original language, this word appease It refers to a covering his face. It's the idea that includes this notion of atonement, a cloaking, a masking, or an obscuring of guilt, a covering over of the elephant in the room and the obvious and the transgressions. 
This is a redemptive and atoning action that Jacob is taking. But Jacob will soon learn what we know from the whole teaching of Scripture. In truth, the Lord must go ahead of Jacob to appease his sin. The Lord must change Esau's heart. Our own works, our own acts, our own contrition, our own appeasement, our own restitution, our own amends, our own works cannot accomplish ultimately a sacrifice for our sin or a changing of the heart. The Lord must go ahead of Jacob to appease his sin. A sacrificial gift of of animals will not suffice as a substitute. The Lamb of God must die to atone for sins. And a lesson in Jacob's life at this point is that that death of the Lamb of God to atone for sins, to appease the wrath of God, and to settle accounts is the basis for all legitimate and long-standing reconciliation. Such an important point. Consider in our culture, we are dragging up cultural differences, sins, conflicts from ages past, hundreds of years ago. Even the slavery versus slave owner issue in the memory of our own culture is front and center in the consciousness of many social justice so-called activists. And what do they call for? They call for gifts to go forward from the majority culture, as it were. Those who they see still living on the benefits of what was unjustly acquired through that wicked mechanism of old. These are called reparations. And what are reparations? Well, they're what Jacob did. He sent reparations out in front of him in the form of 550 animals in the form of a small fortune and holdings from his wealth and stores, seeking to appease his brother. Would it work? Well, it might work provisionally in the moment. You might psychologically manipulate somebody, but I'm here to tell you that the gospel, through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, dying in the place of sinners, is the only sufficient, ultimate, true, lasting foundation for reconciliation. What will heal this growing cultural rift? In our society today, when two people realize that they are a sinner and this individual they are talking to is a sinner and Jesus has died for both of them. And the Lord says that if he he, on the basis of his death forgives others, it it is wrong, it is sin for us to hold unforgiveness towards someone else. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate reparations to repair relationships one to another. Hope in the Messiah to come can establish peace between Jacob and Esau. Hope in the Messiah who has come can establish peace between ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, you know, family feuds, whatever disagreements that we might have today. But ultimately speaking, saints, as we look at the scriptures and consider our own lives, this work of Jesus Christ was the ultimate means to reconcile us with the Father. And if that does not happen, there is no reconciliation that ultimately has any worth or meaning because we, have, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins, worthy and deserving of the wrath of God and hell-bent sinners unless and until the Lord goes before us, Jesus Christ, as a peace offering and we accept the Lamb of God whose death atoned for our sins. Jacob's experience teaches us that the man who wrestled with him all night long 
he must go before Jacob in order to make true reconciliation last and in order to secure true covenant hope and that peace that passes understanding and can heal and mend relationships between brothers who out of a bitter animosity and murderous hatred between one another can be accomplished. And this is happening at the ford of the Jabbok. At the ford of the Jabbok, Jacob continues to wrestle with man, but second major point, Jacob wrestles with God. 22, the same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford Jabbok. He took them and set them across the stream and everything else he had. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. You can almost sense in this ta- text this, the uh, kind of suspense and the fear and the, the concern and just the shocking situation. Perhaps it was a long time before Jacob realized what was going on. There's a struggle. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, verse 25, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And at some point, we assume, he realizes that this is no ordinary human being, that he is wrestling with one who has the power to secure his future and to guarantee the promise of covenant. Verse 26, this man says to Jacob, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob's desperation, once invested in 550 animals as a long shot, Hail Mary passed to appease the broken relationship with his brother, now has shifted to this man who's been wrestling with all night. I will not let you go until you bless me. That is to say, I won't let you go until you assure me safe passage. Because he knows the presence and the psychological strategy that he has come up with is not sufficient to guarantee that he could enter Canaan unscathed. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, that is the Lord wrestling with Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. As Jacob wrestles with God, in, verses, in these verses we just read, we recognize that this is a defining moment in his life. Jacob's life has been marked by conflict. That has been his legacy. The adjective that best describes him, perhaps, is just strife or difficulty and so forth, if those are adjectives. A defining moment, a turning point of wrestling according to the flesh. And now there's something, something's changing. So that is to say, all his life until now, Jacob as an old man, old man has wrestled according to the flesh. We even see shades of this in his plan to appease his brother. With the tools at his disposal, he has wrestled. The New Testament, this interaction illustrates 2 Corinthians 10 so well. And I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. But consider how Jacob's experience in this event illustrates 2 Corinthians 10. The apostle says, The weapons of our warfare, let me back up to verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He goes on to say, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. But you see two categories, two philosophies of war, if you will. One according to the flesh, and the other not according to the flesh, 
but implicitly according to the Spirit. In Jacob's life, marked by conflict, he has waged war according to the flesh for years and years, doing the best that he can to secure his future by means of his own wits and arm strength. And now something has changed. Jacob is learning to war according to the Spirit. Instead of this desperate attempt to save himself, now he desperately clings to a Savior. Instead of a desperate attempt to secure his future through his own holdings, he desperately clings to one who has the power to secure his future, if he would but bless him, a defining moment. Some of you feel, I'm sure, at times, that the best adjective to describe your life is uh, conflict or strife. can't think of an adjective. Those are nouns, I assume, I, I, I suppose. But your life might feel, you might be able to relate to Jacob because of all the difficulty and intensity of trial and struggle you face. And it seems like with every chapter and every leaf, it contains more shadows in the valley of death or more difficulties in one area of life or another or multiple ones. But Jacob's experience teaches us that the long-standing trials in our lives illustrate the scope of two things, at least, God's long-suffering with us, and secondly, His power to save. No matter how long your trial endures, if God still loves you, and He does through Jesus Christ, never leaves you or forsakes you, and He won't, according to His gospel promise, and will deliver you ultimately but through ascension, through the second resurrection, as it were, unto glory one day, that He will save you in spite of your trials. God saved Jacob in spite of all of this character that was marked for years and decades and years and years for man who fought according to the flesh. But Jacob's long-standing hard-headedness and the difficulty and extent of his trials proved to illustrate the steadfastness and delivering power of our Lord. And this is a hopeful perspective to give to us in our own difficulties and struggles. This defining moment in Jacob's life represented a shift from wrestling according to the flesh to wrestling according to the Spirit. We've remarked that it is conspicuously absent from Jacob's testimony is really any meaningful prayer until these chapters we're reading right now. Jacob goes through 13, you know, 12 kids or whatever it was, 11 kids, four wives, and all kinds of family disorder. And nary a prayer is recorded in the scriptures. We ask ourselves, what is this guy's problem? Well, God was working in his long-suffering and patience on the heart of his covenant son. And he's making Jacob a man of prayer. We have a picture of wrestling in prayer. The anguish of the soul hanging on to the promises of God with tenacity. A soul in anguish clinging to the promises of God with tenacity holding fast to that which they know can secure their future, and holding hope against hope desperately, even though the days are dark and trying and difficult and overwhelming, to the only one who can secure safe passage for the soul. Jacob is learning how to pray, how to war according to the Spirit, how to cling to the promises of God, and where true peace, assurance, and security, and hope is to be found. And that's why this is a personal, direct, redemptive, and powerful 
defining moment where Jacob meets God himself, dramatically illustrating these, these things overnight at the ford of the Jabbok. A defining moment as Jacob wrestles with God, and it ends with a meaningful injury. The man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is a significant, a meaningful injury. As we see at the end of this chapter, it says in verse 31, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, which, by the way, is just another name for Peniel. It's just a slightly different spelling. So as he's walking past this place, this occasion, this uh, location where he met the Lord, he was limping because of his hip. This is a sovereign reminder of the encounter he had with the living God who took on flesh, as it were, so to speak, to minister to him, and to change his life in that significant night. This limp is a meaningful injury meant to remind Jacob that he is utter, utterly, desperately, ultimately, and totally dependent on the God whom he wrestled that fateful day. And others recognize this as well. This becomes a foundational identity moment for the culture, history, and the nationality, the people of God. Verse 32, Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Has the Lord given you a meaningful injury? Is, it such, is there such a thing as God reminding us through persistent weakness that His grace is sufficient for us? This is what Paul confessed after he prayed in anguish and prayer that the Lord would remove this thorn in his side. We're not sure what it was, but I guarantee he could relate to Jacob's limp leaving Penuel. It was a meaningful injury so that Jacob did not soon forget that the man that he clung to in desperate hope of covenant promise held the answers to his future and was the only one who could change his brother's heart, secure his way, fulfill the promises, preserve the seed of the Messiah, and give safe passage to the covenant family. This injury that Jacob limped with, perhaps for the rest of his days, I'm not sure, nevertheless was commemorated in this sort of dietary ritual by generations that followed him. We are dependent of God, on God. We are weak without Him. Unless the Lord goes before us, we have no hope. True reconciliation is only accomplished through the suffering of the ultimate covenant Son and all these messages that Jacob's legacy preaches. Be reminded with each twinge of pain on that journey from Penuel to Canaan. Now, thirdly, under Jacob wrestling with God, this can only happen if this is indeed incarnation foreshadowed, God appearing in tangible form, or a theophany. Other scriptures reinforce this. We won't turn there, but Hosea 12, 3-5 say as much. That is, the scriptures here in context, Jacob, he himself confesses, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The Lord has revealed to Jacob, this was himself. Jacob came face to face with God. He faced God on that night. This was God, a pre-incarnate manifestation, a theophany 
God in tangible form, revealing himself to his covenant son. And this foreshadows another event, does it not? Would the second person of the Trinity take on flesh, so to speak, again, but this time in full manifest form? Absolutely. But long before this event ever took place, in another you know, milestone in Jacob's life that we'll read about in the future at Bethlehem, where he set up yet another pillar witness stone of remembrance, Jesus Christ appeared to Jacob in the night, foreshadowing his own incarnation. In this symbolic event, he proved that God himself, he demonstrated that God himself would condescend, would stoop low, would take on the burden of suffering on behalf of his people, that he would leave the glorious, uh, the glorious provisions of heaven and the incredible uh, forever eternal glory as the second person of the Trinity that he shared in heaven next to the Father. He would take on the cloak of humanity, stoop low, and personally reveal himself to his people and take on in his own body, flesh and blood, the payment for their sin to establish the terms of covenant that would bind a people lost, broken, wrestling according to the flesh their whole lives by an unbreakable relationship with the holy God, redeeming them from their sin. And all of this would be possible because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And I submit to you the same Jesus that showed up that night when Jacob wrestled in this significant moment where he became a man, or the one-time man wrestler became a God wrestler. And he learned how to seek the Lord with true spiritual means to secure his future unto eternal life by way of the giving, of the self-giving, the incarnation, the condescension, the sacrifice of the true covenant son to come, Jesus Christ, the son of Jacob to come. Number three, names mark, once again, this occasion. At the Ford Jabbok, we have witnessed Jacob wrestling with man. We have seen him wrestling with God. And now, in verses 27 through 30, important names mark this occasion. This is a theme through Jacob's life, of course. In 27, he said to him, what is your name? God asking Jacob to confess what his identity is. It's the biblical category for name. He says, Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Well, just a little background, in chapter 25, Jacob is named for that moment when he was grasping his brother's heel upon his birth. 24, chapter 25, when her days to give birth, his mother Rebekah, were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. Who is that, kids? Who is the red baby? Esau. And what does his name mean? It actually means that, right? Red. All his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name? Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So these brothers were named for the significant events really accompanying their own birth. For Esau, he was a red, hairy baby. So he was named Esau, which means red. Jacob, he was a heel grasper. He was hanging on to the heel of his brother. And this is an idiom or a figure of speech in the Hebrew, we come to understand it means to trick or to scheme or to deceive, to grasp someone's heel. We have a similar expression in English, pulling my leg. 
That's kind of to jokingly trick somebody. Well, it's like that. Uh, Jacob was the leg puller or the heel grasper, right? We find further evidence of the significance of his name as identifying his character in chapter 27, 35 to 36. And here Esau is upset because once again he's been tricked and bested by his brother. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? This angry a cry that Esau issues is like, Yeah, he is a heel grasper. He did pull my leg. He is a trickster. He stole, he, he did me wrong again. He stole my blessing. Jacob confesses his sin in answering the Lord's question that fateful night in Penuel. When the Lord says, what is your name? And Jacob says, heel grasper, deceiver. It's a confession of his sin. He has been futilely wrestling with man, tricking and scheming his whole life. And there's a picture of coming to terms with this, even in this exchange. What happens next? He is given a new name. Both repentance and transformation are in view. This is a regeneration picture, if you will. Though we recognize Jacob probably as a believer from chapter 28. Nevertheless, this is a great picture of the transforming power of the gospel where we receive a new name. Why? Because we have a new family identity. We submit to a new authority, a Savior and a Father over us. Jesus Christ adopts us in by this work on Calvary, and we are transformed. Baptism is a, name, is a naming ritual ceremony in part, which demonstrates and professes, it testifies to a new identity. And in a sort of baptism experience, even here, Jacob confesses the one-time trickster that he, uh, he, he confesses his identity and character and then receives in exchange for this a new name. No longer, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob to Israel. The old name, a figure of speech, meaning to deceive, the heel grabber, striving, wrestling, scheming with men. In a phrase, Jacob means striving with men, if you will, whereas Israel indicates striving with God. Some have transliterated the meaning of his name to be the prince that prevails with God. The prince who is victorious because God has suffered on his behalf and suffered with him on the way, and secured, his, and secured his victory. The prince that strives or prevails with God. Interestingly, Jacob's response is to ask what the Lord's name is. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And I'm not exactly sure why God holds, uh, withholds his name in part from Jacob in this exchange. But there are a few similar circumstances in Scripture that may help to fill in the blanks. Judges 13, 17 through 18, Samson's father Manoah asks the name of the angel of the Lord, who is again, again, once again a theophany. 
And he says, why do you ask my name? For it is wonderful. Sometimes the Lord withholding the self-profession of his own name draws attention to his holiness, how wonderful and powerful he is. In other words, if Jacob asks him his name and he does not reveal it, it is a message to Jacob that he is not a mere man. This is God condescending, stooping low, inv invading the, uh, his creation and interacting in a personal way, revealing himself to Jacob and securing his covenant promises. The wrestler, the one who has wrestled with men all his life, finally prevails by means of covenant grace. Jacob conquers. Jacob is elevated to a position and a posture of privilege and importance. He becomes a prince. He is successful. He prevails with God. But is it by his own might and strength? His whole life illustrates that his arm strength, his wits are futile. But the wrestler finally has prevailed because God has striven for him on his behalf. God has intervened and he, he has secured by covenant grace alone victory for his son, Jacob. Finally, in light of all this, Jacob chooses a name for this, once again, very important place. And in this altar moment, Jacob calls the name of the place Peniel in verse 30, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Penuel or Peniel mean the same thing, the face of God. Listen to that phrase or that sentence again. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob is painfully aware of his own sin. He knows acutely that he does not deserve to be in the presence of God. He knows that the one who visited him that night is the, holy, uh, is the holiest of all. He is the one for whom the realms of glory are, are reserved. He is the one who cannot allow any sinner into his presence. And this shocks Jacob. I have seen the face of God and have not been instantly killed because of my sin. How is this possibly the case? How was this miracle, uh, how was this miracle performed that me, a sinner, proving so over these many years, is allowed to see the face of God and live? It is because that same man, I submit, that wrestled with Jacob that night would take on Jacob's sin and die in his place. That man who wrestled with Jacob that night would go to Calvary, the cross. And if you are a believer, he would take upon your, uh, himself your sin as well. So that you, one day with Jacob, can confess, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. These gospel truths are coming together in glorious ways in Jacob's life. Not because of him, but in spite of him. This astonishing experience at Penuel, where Jacob meets God face to face and wrestles him all night long. What does it preach? What does it proclaim? Well, ultimately, that you cannot see God face to face. There is no true reconciliation with the Lord unless that same person who wrestled with Jacob would condescend, would stoop low, would take on flesh, would be incarnate, would absorb the conflict and wrath that was due our sin, even the wrath of God, and to suffer death in our place. All of this inflicted by our own guilt. 
And this, I submit to you, is what is foreshadowed in this incarnation, uh, for, in this incarnation-like moment, where God reveals Himself in tangible form to Jacob to show him that because He will one day take on the burden of our sin, we can see Him face to face and live. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord, we thank you that the promise of the gospel is such that the most hell-bent of sinners, the most insane examples of transgressing your holy law, Lord Jesus, can be reconciled and atoned for when a sufficient sacrifice is provided. We thank you, Lord, for the message of Jacob's encounter, which teaches us that Christ, who goes before as a sacrificial lamb, as a peace offering to satisfy the wrath of a holy God, can secure us audience and communion with the Father forever because uh, one has died in our place. Next week, Lord, as we gather in this place and as we gather at your table and as the elements, the very cost that was paid to make this moment possible or that was anticipated in Jacob's face-to-face encounter with you and that was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came and died, I pray that our hearts would be reminded just as Jacob's was in this event, that Jesus Christ is our covenant hope. Lord, I pray that you would write upon the tables of our hearts these truths, that we might remember them and apply them. Lord, bring these uh, amazing things to the fore as we read your scriptures and give us the ability to proclaim and articulate them to our children and to others we have the opportunity to share the gospel with. We pray, Lord, that your, that, uh, your word would go forth by these means that you would in your grace gather us again to worship once again as your people next week, recognizing anew how much you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.